0: Good morning, one and all. Hope you're doing well. Uh, the cold is on its way out. I know that you're fascinated with everything that's going on with my uh, biological system, but I just wanted to mention that the cold is on its way out. I had a good night's sleep last night for the first night in a couple of nights, so I'm pumped, baby. I'm ready to chat. <laughs> so, hope you're doing well. It uh, is today, I think, the 16th of June, 2006, 8.25 in the morning, off Do work I do. So I wanted to mention something. I've uh, once or twice been slightly down on the uh, even bigger, chattier forehead of Dr. Phil, and I wanted to mention something I thought that was very good that he said. So I'd like to try and be be fair where, where fair is due, and talk about something that he mentioned that was very interesting. Uh, very positive, and uh, something that uh, I hadn't considered at all, which uh, is always particularly delicious to me. Well, what he said was, uh, this is uh, um, on one of the shows where a father was hyper-competitive. I mentioned this a couple of podcasts ago, and it was sort of a win-lose uh, thing. And this was on a show where there were all these two 47-year-old twins who were also hyper-competitive and Southern, right? So, you know, I mean, Southern women, um, God bless y'all, but uh, sometimes there seems to be a slight shallow side to this uh, approach uh, to femininity. But um, what I wanted to uh, to chat about was this idea of external validation, which came up in, in this Dr. Phil show, and I thought he had uh, very wise things to say. So I'll sort of lay out the issue that was in the show, and then his uh, solution, which um, I think was uh, was excellent. So he said that... Uh, sorry, let me start with, with the, the issues that came up from the, um, uh, from the guests. So the first uh, were these two bubbly, giddy, idiotic, uh, shallow, vain uh, Southern women from Texas who were twins and were absolutely obsessed with competing with each other on the basis of, you know, who weighs less, uh, who's prettier, uh, who got whose boyfriend, all this, like, completely idiotic and and, uh, insulting to women everywhere kind of stuff. And what Dr. Phil pointed out, and this is something that you you never really see in this kind of situation, this is why I've mentioned many, many podcasts ago, my skepticism towards this idea of excellence. And the reason that I dislike the idea of excellence in the business world is that excellence in the business world always translates to more work without pay, right? So this is something that, there's a wonderful, wonderful Dilbert that I still use sometimes at work when I'm discussing um, salary with with, um, with the, the sort of CXO, at the CXO level. And there's this great Dilbert where, <laughs> so Dilbert's boss says, you know, we um, we want nothing but the best, the industry best to work here. And Dilbert says, well, yeah, but, you guys, like, we pay industry average here. he's like, right. We like them bright, but clueless. <laughs> and I think that's over. It's very funny because I'm always very suspicious about people who use superlatives in terms of quality with no tangible, measurable thing around them, right? So, yeah, everybody wants to hire the best people. Our people are the best in the industry. We want you to be, uh, you know, totally dedicated. We want you to, to pursue excellence in your job. And, you know, hey, nothing wrong with that. You know, uh, quality is wonderful, but uh, quality is uh, expensive, right? I mean, if I say to the car salesman, I'm looking to buy a car, and I say to the car salesman, I want nothing but the best for my, yeah, you know, I want nothing but the best car. The salesman's like, Yahoo! ka I get to retire on the commission from this loaded up baby. And so he's going to lead me to the, you know, mega turbo vertical takeoff and landing kind of sports car and say, okay, well, here's the price tag because you wanted nothing but the best. So this is your price tag for excellence. And this is, of course, something that, you know, I want nothing but the very best education. Okay, well, now here's, you know, I want nothing but the best executive MBA. Okay, here's a $200,000 bill from Harvard, (laughs) right? You know, everybody talks about excellence, and nobody ever wants to talk about the cost. And uh, this is something that I've always uh, sort of found funny. And so uh, that that's something that uh, is well worth uh, thinking about. I think not only in terms of your professional context, but in terms of your your private life. Uh, if you want to be a, a very good person or an excellent person, you know the only the only place to do that is in ethics, right? Now, the, unfortunately, the price of ethics. Is rather high these days, uh, because most of our family and our companions, uh, which we have uh, accidentally inherited, are not um, not virtuous. Right? I mean, this is where the ABC, why well, they call it the accidental biological cage. The reason that I chisel so hard at the innate virtue of family is that family is is absolutely accidental. And if you were to ask just about any moralist. Um, I don't know throughout history, but yeah, probably throughout history. But uh, let's just say in the modern world, if you were to ask any moralist, you know, throw, throw a dot at a map, and let's just say your map is detailed enough that... Sorry, I didn't work this metaphor out too much well to begin with. Let's just say that the map is detailed enough that you can figure out who you've hit on uh, the map. Maybe uh, um, a f- uh, oh, uh, open the phone book and point at a random name. That's, uh, that works even better and then uh, say that you now have to spend time with this person for the rest of your life and you have to love them and so on. Well, of course, most people would say that the odds of you finding somebody who's really compatible with your values and somebody who's really honorable and somebody who's virtuous and somebody who's intelligent or whatever it is that the characteristics are that you look for in any kind of relationship, friend or lover or whatever, the odds of you finding that person by pointing at a random name in a phone book is ridiculous, and if you were to say that the whole world over, this is you could sort of the phone book is the whole world, then you'd say the odds go down even more, right? And so this, for me, because I mean, friendships at least you choose, so there's more likelihood, unless it's you know, just scar tissue. Unless your friends are scar tissue from your family, there's more likelihood you're going to have some compatibility with your friends. But family, I mean, just there's the odds are low. It's not, it does not mean that it's impossible. I mean, I'm not anti-family. <laughs> just for those of you who are uh, who this uh, this type of topic always rubs the wrong way uh, i'm not anti family at all all i'm all i'm saying is that v- virtue is more important than genetics right i mean because if it's not then aren't we sort of open to racism as well i mean if genetics are really important in terms of the family then wouldn't they be really important in terms of judging the races i mean aren't we then aristocrats of family right uh, Aristocrats say that we are uh, powerful and virtuous and good by blood, by our, uh, by by blue blood, by our inheritance of uh, genes. And if we say that that's true of our own family, then we're just aristocratics of us, right? And and I don't think most libertarians are really keen on inherited virtue or uh, forced association by by blood. That wouldn't make any sense. So, so this question of excellence is always fascinating to me, and. It's never excellence in virtue right that's that never occurs. Excellence is always be really, really good, but I don't want to pay you for it, so I'm going to give you a medal called excellence right i mean it's uh it's exploitive right but it's exploitive based on our own naivete so I mean, as I said to a, a boss I had once, he said, You know, I want you to be the best in the industry. I'm like, fantastic. I think that's a wonderful goal. I'm totally behind it because I've looked at the pay curve for my job and the best in the industry, they earn a fortune. So absolutely, you tell me what it looks like to you to be the best in the industry because for you, it's a productivity goal and for me, it is as well. But for me, primarily, it's a, it's a salary goal. So that's... Uh, <laughs> And that of course didn't go very far but at least he stopped bugging me about excellence which <laughs> which was nice enough to begin with so the uh, the issue that uh, came up in the doctor phil show was competition right competition being a form of excellence i'm tying it together i know you think i'm drifting but it's it's all part of a subtle web that i'm weaving <laughs> so this idea of um of of excellence it's always uh, in some damn shallow thing like who's thinner who's prettier and all this kind of who's whose car is cooler i mean who can drink more I mean, it's all these these stupid little competitions and sports of course is definitely uh, core to this kind of stuff and so of course he um seems a little bit impatient these days which i think is interesting he's 55 so he said that the the time he has left in this life can be measured in in weeks so it's like 1500 weeks and he's got left to live and so he seems to be a little bit impatient with people because there's... I mean, there's so many people who are just missing their whole lives. There's so many people just missing their whole lives. And people who are into these totally shallow and ridiculous competitions are definitely those kinds of people. I mean, I like to win, sure. I like to win in business, absolutely. But I don't consider it any kind of virtue. I mean, I have no idea. Gary Kasparov or whatever his name was, the, the, the chess champion... I have no idea of his virtue, I know that he's smart at chess, I know he can win at chess, but I have no idea if he's a good or bad person because of that, and so this idea of competition is a very, very dangerous one, because in competition, there's always a winner, of course, and a loser, and there are far more losers than winners, right? So, if I, I did an RFP recently and we didn't we didn't win it and there were thirty five people who submitted RFPs and one company got the business and thirty four of us were left to suck eggs and count up the hours we'd spent to no avail. And it wasn't an RFP I thought we should, I mean just for those who are in the business, um if you if you submit an unsolicited RFP you have about a three percent chance of winning. Uh, you it, And I've been on the other side of this, where you help people to shape the RFPs so that it matches your product. So that's how you get around competition rules and public sector and so on. So, I mean, this stuff's all nonsense. Right? Every rule that you have is is broken. Every rule that you can imagine is broken. Uh, just about every which way you can think of. But this idea of, of competition in interpersonal relationships is definitely uh, a baddie. Definitely the wrong thing to be doing the wrong thing to approach, any any you're in the sort of personal relationships with people, the only I mean the only excellence that you have is involved in in virtue and supporting each other. I mean that's that's the excellence that you have. I um, I was competitive with my brother, and I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't say that I'm naturally a very competitive person, uh, because I enjoy sports. Um, I really don't mind uh, losing. Uh, I don't like getting involved in sports where I'm continually losing, so I was pretty good at Unreal Tournament, to use the <laughs> to use the term sports pretty loosely. And uh, there was a I could uh, there was a guy at my work who was just a sheer genius. The man could do like he could like walk through walls and do backflips and you know fire twelve rockets at your groin while he was uh, uh, you know <laughs> doing doing somersaults through the air. And I just I could never beat him, never, never. I mean once accidentally I think. Uh, so I didn't really uh, we, we'd go online and I'd make sure he was on my team right? <laughs> so we'd play but uh, I wouldn't say that I'm too naturally competitive, I did go through a pretty competitive phase with, with my brother when I was younger because like all idiot older brothers he was very proud of his ability to be bigger and stronger than I was based on being born a couple of years sooner and for guys that's a big deal right because I mean our, our the puberty thing is pretty pretty important and you, he's a pretty pretty big size and strength differential in that situation, and he was very keen on uh, beating me, and would always. Uh, what he would do was he would beat me in a very cold and hostile fashion, and then he would berate me and humiliate me because I would be a sore loser. And I mean, <laughs> it's all it's also horribly predictable. I wish somebody had just told me, just sat sat me down and said, you know, in hindsight looking back, it's just also. It's all such a ridiculously obvious pattern, but of course, at the time, it all seemed like life and death. That that I thought that somehow I would retain some sense of, or or gather or uh, sort of increase some sense that I had of of self-efficacy or whatever, just by uh, beating him once. I had to beat him once. And Of course, once I started beating him uh, in tennis and stuff, it was uh, it was uh, quite different. But uh, it didn't solve the problem, right? I mean, you you can't. There's no, as I say, in the God of Atheists, there's no external problem to the to the problem of insecurity, right? There's nothing outside of yourself that will help you with insecurity, right? If you're going balding, you can get hair transplants. If you're overweight, you can get liposuction. If you're showing wrinkles, you can get Botox. If you are, uh, uh, you can buy a, a fancy car, you can buy a beautiful house, you can buy a beautiful wife or husband. Uh, if you're into the trophy thing, but none of that will solve your problem of insecurity. In fact, it will make it worse because you're uh, you're acting on the premise that there's some external problem to insecurity, an uh, external solution to insecurity, and now you've sort of made a shrine to that belief, which is false. So it's actually going to make you more trapped in that belief. So don't uh, don't do that. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Don't do that. Um, now, as far as competition goes. Uh, The the issue with it in a personal sense is, is there's a winner and a loser, and I don't think that it's very virtuous if you claim to love someone to say, I want to win and to walk away from that interaction dusting off your hands and saying, well, they're down in the dirt and I've beaten them and I feel great, and that that's got anything to do with love. Well, of course it doesn't have anything to do with love, but uh, what it does have to do is is the false self, uh, sadistic triumph over the humiliation of others, and what you are conquering, of course, is your own humiliation. Right? I mean, <laughs> the desire to humiliate other people is not related to them. It's impossible to be related to them because to to have an, a them in your life requires empathy. To really have other people show up in your life as separate individuals requires empathy. Uh, empathy. It does not uh, involve sadism in any way. Or sadism is an absence of empathy. And so if you feel cruel towards someone, you you know it's got nothing to do with them. Uh, it's only your own sense of humiliation that you are trying to master. And it's very complicated in this sense, because sadism is self-humiliation to the nth degree. And so by uh, trying to humiliate others, or trying to beat others, or trying to win and to dance around uh, in your own mind as the the champion of the conquester, then, uh, hey, George Bush can make up words like decider, so can I. But um, uh, there's self-humiliation and external validation, right? This is... There's subjugation and external validation. And by external validation, I'm just talking about what Ayn Rand calls the second-hander thing, right? Which is... um, Which, I mean, she she discusses quite well in her novels and in, in her nonfiction, but in my humble opinion, misses the point completely because she talks about it in a business sense, in a political sense, in a financial sense, in a whatever-you-want sense, but she never talks about it in terms of parenting. I mean, she was not a parent herself and doesn't seem to have spent much thought on the topic. There's a very brief sketch of healthy children in Galt's Gulch at the end of Atlas Shrugged, but she really doesn't seem to have done much thinking about it for obvious reasons that her parents were probably very corrupt, which her not focusing on that issue meant that when she recreated a community, it was um, judgmental and, and hostile. And you had to, I mean, talk about external validation, right? I mean, Ayn Rand is very much against being a second-hander, and then everyone has to submit her her judgments to Ayn Rand in order to have them validated. It's, it's funny, right? But I mean, it's sad, but it's funny. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that happens when you don't deal with your childhood, right? You you recreate what you most despise uh, for a variety of reasons, I think we've talked about it length before so uh, if you if you're aiming at virtue and you haven't dealt with your childhood and we all had childhoods that were corrupt to one degree or another, well, then uh, you are going to not you're going to not make it, and then you better not you better not try is sort of what I would suggest because if you're really into virtue and you try and aim at to being a virtuous person, but you don't deal with your childhood. Then you're really setting yourself up for uh, a, a, a real humiliation at a moral level, right? Because if you if you really are aiming for integrity and virtue and, and all this kind of good stuff, but you don't deal with your childhood, then you're gonna miss and create all this bad stuff, which is going to be all the worse because you're really aiming at virtue, right? I mean, if you aim at if you aim at I don't know being an NBA star and you miss, that's bad, but at least you're not. Corrupt right I mean but if you aim at being a virtuous person a really virtuous person and you miss then that's really humiliating and so what I mean what I mean by all of this is that we're interested in virtue most of us because we grew up in corrupt environments just as everyone else did but f- you know for a variety of reasons we've talked about in one of our early uh, Colin shows for a variety of reasons we uh, we felt the corruption and we aim at uh, less corruption and communicating about more integrity and so on in our lives but what what happens is that we don't if we don't deal with the early humiliation of being raised by corrupt and hypocritical people or parents then when we aim to be virtuous in our adult life we'll simply recreate that humiliation by undermining the the, the, the virtue that we're aiming at right so we just will we'll end up being hypocritical and and uh, causing more problems than resolving because we haven't dealt with our first humiliation so we end up having to recreate it in a moral sense right so I would imagine maybe it's possible that that most of us went through this kind of humiliation based on moral standards. I know that I did more, I think a little bit more for my brother than I did for my mother and a little bit more for my well, a little bit more for my father though he was not around so it was a little less intense but uh, the the um the control that that I was subjected to was very much on a moral uh, basis uh, and so maybe that moral humiliation or subjugation from a false argument from morality is more what we experience which is why we want to try and be more moral, but you, we still have to deal with that humiliation or we're going to recreate it for other people. Now, in the realm of competition and in the realm of excellence, Dr. Phil said something that I think was really great and uh, has pretty profound implications for me, at least. And, and what he said was, he said, uh, like this guy who I mentioned in a po- couple of podcasts ago, hyper-competitive, and if his kids aren't going to win a game with a friend, they just send the friend away. Right, if you're playing Scrabble and you're going to lose with your friend, then you just stop the game, right? So you don't have to deal with, with losing. And what happened? uh, What Dr. Phil said, he said two things. One that was sort of interesting from an anecdotal standpoint, and one that was interesting from a profound standpoint. The first was he said that in sort of studies that have been done, people have been given tests where the knowledge increment on each of their tests is really minor, so there's no real effort for them in getting A's and so on. And then when they actually get a real test, like they get out into the real world, and they uh, face this, um, uh, this this problem of not uh, being able to do perfectly on a test, uh, they panic, they paralyze, they have panic attacks, they, they freeze up. They, I mean, they haven't learned how to manage the stress of uh, being of failing, right? Managing the stress of failure is very, very important. Learning to manage the stress of failure is very important and uh, will make you robust, right? And so he said, and that was sort of the interesting anecdotal thing, what he said that I thought was very powerful from a uh, from a deeper standpoint was he said, he said, my, my son, uh, I think it was football that he played, he said, my son would go out there and play football and he would be up against a far superior team And he would just get hammered. I mean, they would just smear him, I think was his phrase. And he said, I'd be standing there watching him, and I would feel so proud of him for getting back up and and fighting, and, and, you know, although it was hopeless, right? Getting back up and fighting. And, of course, this may have something to do with the libertarian movement or not. We don't know, uh, because uh, we can't read the future. But he said, and when my son came off the field, I asked him, I said... Are you proud of the way you played today? Now, that's a very important statement and a very interesting statement to make. Are you proud of the way that you played today? How fascinating. How amazingly fascinating. Not, I'm proud of the way you played today. Not, you did a great job. But, are you proud of the way you played today? Now, that says a lot in a, in a few sentences. Now, the first thing that it says, obviously, is I don't want you to be dependent upon my validation. I don't want you to be dependent on any external validation. Any external validation. Whether you're tall or pretty or handsome or rich or poor or cool or you know, whether you should get a girlfriend or should get a boyfriend or shouldn't have a girlfriend or a boyfriend who's the way... Any external value, anybody else, anybody else's judgment. Right? I don't want you to depend. So he's saying, I don't want you to depend on, on, even on my judgment. I'm unbearably proud of you for what you've done. I don't want you to be dependent on my judgment. That is a uh, a wonderful thing to say, and a great foundation. Right. So if you if you've got kids, give it a shot. I think it's it's a wonderful foundation for them to to grow up with integrity. The most important thing which Doctor Phil didn't mention, though, I'm so I'm sure he knows is that it says that you have a conscience, right? See, the, the problem with parenting, oh, one of the major problems with parenting, is that parents assume that children do not have a conscience. This is why uh, bullying exists. I mean, this is why the state exists. Right, The state exists because people don't believe that there's... A conscience, such a thing as a conscience that motivates people. I believe very strongly that we know what's right and wrong. I mean, we know what's right and wrong. And if you've spent any time around mentally ill people or people who are going through significant dysfunction in their lives, the first thing that you're always going to see is hypocrisy, is lies. I mean, feeding, uh, bel- believing lies is like feeding your body motor oil. I mean, yeah, maybe you'll survive for a little bit, like a couple of tablespoons of motor oil every day, but after a while, you're going to get sick. Really sick, and it might be irreversible. Our minds process truth the way our bodies process nutrition. And we don't have to feed our brains the truth. We don't have to feed our bodies healthy foods. And we can stand a few white lies the same way that we can have McDonald's every week or two. But On a steady diet, we're toast. And so when you say to someone, are you proud of the way you behave today? A lot of people will shy away from that because they think it's subjective. Like he's just going to say, yeah, I'm proud. Yeah, I I pushed that little kid down and stomped on his back and I'm proud of that because it helped us win. And they think that if they say to someone, are you proud of the way that you behaved or are you proud of the way you're living that people are just going to make stuff up and, and, and not, not suffer any consequences, right? just make stuff up. Well, of course, the majority of our brain activity is beyond our control. The vast majority of our brain activity is beyond our control. I mean, there's no way you can sit and visualize a purple duck and feel happy. Happiness is certainly outside of our control. Pa- insomnia, panic attacks, uh, all, all of these things, depression, all of these things are outside of our conscious control. And so, our unconscious is designed to guide us and help us, right? I mean, It's not designed to trip us up. It's only designed to trip us up if we willfully believe garbage, willfully believe nonsense, willfully advocate falsehoods, willfully corrupt ourselves or others, then yes, it's going to get in your way. But that's what it's designed to do. And so, if you say even to a little, little kid... I mean, their unconscious is formed already. If you say to a little, little kid, if you catch them on videotape pushing over their little daughter, or sorry, their little little brother or, or little sister, or pinching them, and you say, are you proud of what you did? They won't say yes. I mean, they might, but they're not going to say yes without a belligerence or a hostility or a, uh, a, a, some sort of warped interpersonal activity. Because we all have a conscience. It's called reality. It's called our reality processing. And it accumulates everything that we do in the world and compares it with our values. And our values are not up to us. I mean, the values that we hold consciously, yeah, absolutely, it's up to us. I can say that up is down and black is white and good is evil and evil is good. I can do all of that sort of stuff. I can be a postmodernist and, and, and turn my brain into a kind of rarefied atomic gas, for sure. No, no, uh, no container can hold me. But we don't have a choice as to what that does to us unconsciously. Uh, We need to discover our values as well as analyze them. As well as synthesize, we need to explore. And I would say that when you're an adult, the exploring is more important than the synthesizing. You need to not say to yourself, well, rationally, I believe X. But you need to look at what you do to find out where... Uh, where the values are that you're really acting on, right? So, I mean, if somebody had said this to me when I was 25, uh, you know, I'd I, I said, well, I believe in virtue and rationality and so on. It's like, well, um, do you believe that it's um, it's virtuous to um, hang around corrupt people who are never going to change? And I'd say, well, no, of course not. And then that's all I would then say, well, look at your family. That's all, that's all I mean, would need to be this what's so annoying. Uh, it's like it would take take five seconds. For me, anyway, I mean, other people seems to take a little bit longer, but uh, maybe i'm maybe I'm sort of a <laughs> i'm you know what I'm probably going backwards with all the knowledge I have now and saying it would take five seconds, but of course uh it didn't, but of course it took me it took my therapist eighteen months to say it and and I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it I was educating her as well as she was educating me, but it is something that you need to explore within yourself or you need to put put your conscious values aside and say. How am I acting, right? If, if I didn't know anything, if I get to see a silent movie of my life and I didn't know anything about who I was, then what would I assume the values were that I was acting on, right? I mean, this is a pretty important thing. So if people didn't get to hear your words and your 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 brilliant arguments and your uh, great metaphors and your whatever it is that, that you're working with in your life to promote the cause of virtue, if people didn't get to see all of that but simply got to look at how you act in your life, who you spent your time with, how you spent your time, would they say, uh, just based on your actions, well, here is somebody who is um, you know, really, uh, they've got consistency, they've got integrity, they're really into uh, virtue because they spend time around the people who obviously are treating them well, with respect, and there's lots of laughter and intimacy and hugs and happiness and all that kind of stuff. Or would they say, well, here's kind of a lost soul, who has these ideas but doesn't really believe them? I mean, I, they wouldn't even know your ideas, but they would—they would see a certain sadness in interac- your inter- interaction with people, right? The silent movie is—is is the real values of our life, right? What we're—what we're actually doing, rather than what we're saying. And so we—we we have a complete knowledge of what we need to do. We have complete knowledge of how we need to live. We have complete knowledge of what we need to do. I mean, this is why it's so funny to me when people fight me. I mean, if I'm saying something that's ridiculous to you, discard it. I mean, I would certainly appreciate it if you would, you know, help me to understand that it's ridiculous, because I don't want to believe in ridiculous things any more than you do. But uh, people just get offended and mad, right? And then they get angry at me, which is funny, because you know, <laughs> what do I, what do I know, right, about your family, about your life? You know everything you need to know, and that's why I sort of caution people. And and uh, Greg on the board said this as well. He's one of our most prolific, and I think sometimes a, a very, a very wise poster. <coughs> Greg said, "You know, when I when I get offended about something that Steph says or, or posts, or something somebody else posts, I um, I, I give myself a, a day or two to think about it. And it's a wise thing. You know, count to ten. I mean, it's not a not an unwise thing to say at all." And That's something to understand. You know what you need to do in your life. You know how you need to act in your life. You know exactly the nature of your relationships. You know exactly the virtue and the vices of those around you. You know exactly down to the tiniest dotted I and cross T. The full moral map of your entire world. You know it right down to the last detail. You don't have to act on it at all. I mean, that's our choice. You can reject that knowledge. You can't erase that knowledge because the controls are beyond your your grasp, right? But you can ignore that knowledge for sure, right? You can pretend that a cancer that's eating your esophagus doesn't exist. And you can take drugs to numb the pain. I mean... All that means is that it gets worse. You can't get rid of it by willing it, but you can certainly get rid of the belief in it or the, 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 the pain of it by drugging yourself or whatever. And so you know everything that there is to know. I mean, let me ask you this. <laughs> How does your liver work? I have vague notions, but I don't know. I eat food and I have energy. I have no idea what's going on down there in any substantive uh, detail. No idea at all. I don't, I don't really even get the whole breathing thing. <laughs> right, so everything that's going on I, I'm not sitting here figuring out how to work my voice and drive and, and all that sort of stuff. I I'm relying so much on on everything that is going on in the unconscious. I mean, what I'm doing at a conscious level is about five percent of what's going into these podcasts. And that might be optimistic. So even my desire to pursue these topics for 20 years is not a conscious... I didn't will that. I just had that desire since, uh, since I was a little kid. And so you can successfully understand everything about your own life just by relaxing and stopping to fight, fighting the knowledge you already have. Forget about the way you want the world to be. Forget about the way you want people to be. What you want in terms of other people's behavior doesn't mean shit, frankly what you prefer doesn't add up to a fight and a thunderstorm because your desires are only important relative to you not to other people in your life you might think oh this person could be better or this person I'll, I'll hang around to make them a better person or they'll change or, or they're not that bad but this you've got, you have no control over your opinions about other people deep down other people control your opinions of them by how they act that's virtue, that's responsibility how people act determines how you feel about them you don't have any control over that you can accept or reject how they act you can accept or reject your feelings about how they act but you can't change how they act and you can't change how that makes you feel it's beyond your control Somebody beats you, you can't make yourself love them. You can't. It's completely impossible. You can't find any value in somebody who is violent or corrupt towards you. None. N- not, not a shred. Especially when you're an adult and you, your parents are a kid, you can't go back and undo all of that, and neither can they. And of course, as I've mentioned before, anything which they do now in terms of I'm sorry, I'm sorry, only occurs, or is only occurring, A, because you bring it up, and B, because they don't have any power anymore over you. And in fact, they need you, because they're getting older. Right, so uh, Nonsense. Way too late. And so when it, this, this idea that you don't need any external validation is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial to understand. You know the truth about everything in your life. You know the truth about everyone in your life. You know the truth about yourself. You know what you need to do to be a virtuous and happy person. You know everything there is to know. And that's why you don't need any external validation. That's why you don't need other people to tell you that you're right or that you're wrong. You just need to look inwards. You just need to look inwards. We know all of this stuff. We know it all. So you don't need to listen to me anymore, I guess. (laughs) My major goal in all of this is to get you out of opinion, right? I mean, that's my, my basic goal, is to get you out of opinion. And when it comes to moral judgments of relationships, um, the way to get out of opinion is through introspection, right? through, through accepting that you know everything and uh, not fighting yourself anymore. And that's, that's all you need to know. You, you know everything. You have a conscience. You've processed everything that's gone on in your life. You've come to absolute conclusions uh, that are not subjective but based entirely upon the accumulated behavior of others and how it's affected you. Uh, you, you know everything that there is to know, and so you don't need uh, anybody else's opinion about what's right or what's wrong in terms of what to do in your relationships uh so i mean that's what to me is funny about people get mad at me it's like but they know right they're only getting mad at me because i'm it's their false self getting mad at me because i'm pointing out the facts right that that you know (laughs) as i mentioned yesterday if you had a good relationship with your family you would never be upset about somebody who says that most people don't have a good relationship with their family because you'd recognize that you were pretty much an exception, and you'd, you'd have known, you'd know how difficult, how different you were just based on having grown up and being in the world, so you'd probably say, yes, thank you, I appreciate that, you're absolutely right, so either you didn't have a good relationship with your family, in which case you're going to either listen to what I'm saying as, as someone who's trying to help you, or you're going to get mad at me because I'm telling the truth and you don't want to handle it, which is very bad, right, and then you're sort of being your parents, right, uh, and you don't want to do that because that's going to make you unhappy, it's not going to make me unhappy because I know what's going on. It's going to make you unhappy, and that's sort of my major concern. Or, you know, you had a good relationship with your family, in which case you're going to appreciate that I'm bringing up that most people don't because you, you know how unique you are. So, so that's sort of my major issue. External validation is not anything that you need. I mean, I'm not talking about the scientific method and so on. Yeah, We're, we're not talking about uh, yeah, empirical, physical measurements. We're talking about the truth about the moral nature of everyone around you. You know, 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 you don't need anyone else to tell you what's going on in your relationships. You know the facts of the matter right down to the core. Now, for Dr. Phil, he's religious, so he believes that you have a conscience that's placed there by God. But in the metaphor that I've been working with from 277 onwards, all this means is that the unconscious, which processes, absorbs and processes reality and produces emotions based on the principles that come in from the external world in terms of people's behavior and your own behavior as well, well... That God is the unconscious, and so you absolutely uh, have uh, access to all that knowledge, and you can pray to yourself <laughs> if you like, but you uh, you need to get access to that. Because um, consistency with the truth is freedom, right? Uh, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. The unconscious to be commanded must be obeyed. Uh, Actually, not to be commanded, but for the unconscious to to work with you rather than against you, you have to ask it questions, and you have to submit to uh, the judgment because the conscious mind is far too prone (coughs) to falsifying for the sake of uh, immediate comfort. Thank you so much for listening. As my voice gives out, I will stop podcasting, and uh, I will talk to you soon. I really appreciate it. I uh, got some, another, uh, two donations last night. Thank you so, so much. It means everything to me. And uh, trust me, it's, uh, if you spend less than 20K on Free Domain Radio... Uh, you're doing a whole lot better than I did in terms of uh, generating these ideas through therapy and so on. So, uh, I appreciate donations that you hand my way. For fifty bucks, you get a copy of The God of Atheists, my novel. For a hundred bucks, you get The God of Atheists and almost a three-volume novel, which I think is uh, very good. And uh, I really appreciate your donations. I will talk to you soon. Oh, I did put the iTunes thing up by the way, so the iTunes is now available as um, Free Domain Radio Part Two, which is shows two seventy one and above. So thanks again for listening. I will talk to you soon.